say I'm crazy show i am he glad you're with us on this rather balmy wednesday evening it's been warm the last couple days right i think it hit up like in the mid 90s yesterday and i think it was around 90 maybe a little higher today it's a hot september y'all and uh hopefully we'll get more moderate temperatures soon got a bunch of stories to discuss with you and we're going to start with a person who I really never thought I'd have to discuss much, uh, but since she did get out of the stir the other day, I guess it's worth mentioning that Kim Davis is free. She's freed from jail in that uh, gay marriage dispute situation in Kentucky. Now, I have to be honest. I don't care whether the woman went to jail. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I was the judge, I'd probably have fined her. Uh, rather than put her in jail. But I think the judge figured, you know, her supporters would just raise the money. So she spoke at a rally after she was freed, saying, I just want to give God the glory. See, here's my central problem with the Kim Davises of the world. They say that, and, and by the way, Mike Huckabee and Ted Cruz were both at her rally, as they were at a rally uh, that was described by the Daily Cause as pro-war. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But it, it troubles me a great deal, as a Christian, that people feel that expressing your religious beliefs includes denying people their human rights. That's a problem for me. I don't know if it's a problem for you, but the idea that people who profess Christian faith have as some foundation of that faith, the denial of rights to others is just, it, it is completely and utterly perplexing to me. Now, you know, she walked on stage, did Kim Davis to the music of Eye of the Tiger, which kind of startles me that they couldn't find anything more current to play, but you know, what, what are you going to do? Uh, Many of her supporters, and, and I, I believe Huckabee, uh, who said, like, you know, put me in jail instead. Well, if you ask, Mike. Uh, but her lawyer spoke for her. And I find it interesting that there was not at this rally any concrete indication from Kim Davis that she was now prepared to follow the law and issue same-sex marriages. Uh, apparently she's going to let her underlings continue to do it. Her lawyer says her underlings aren't really authorized to do it, and those marriages are invalid, which, of course, to me, is utterly insane. It's crazy. But that's what they're going back and forth with. The judge in this case, David L. Bunning of Federal District Court, uh, who was the one who sent her to jail. Same guy who sent her to jail was the guy who freed her 
said, and I'm quoting here, Defendant Davis shall not interfere in any way, directly or indirectly, with the efforts of her deputy clerks to issue marriage licenses to all legally eligible couples. That includes gays. If Defendant Davis should interfere in any way with their issuance, that will be considered a violation of this order and appropriate sanctions will be considered. Now, I don't know whether or not uh, she is going to abide by the judge's ruling when she was asked, apparently, uh, over and over again by reporters, if she would abide by this latest court order, she remained silent. And her lawyer, a guy named Staver, said, quote, she is not going to violate her conscience. How can you have a conscience as a Christian and be exclusionary and say that part of your Christian faith is exclusion? That's it. It boggles the mind, at least my mind anyway. And I still, despite numerous sins, <laughs> consider myself a Christian. I don't understand it. Um. Her lawyer also called on the governor, Stephen Bashir. And by the way, Kim Davis is a Democrat, just so you know. She's no, you know, Yahoo conservative Republican, even though Republicans flocked to her side at that rally. Uh, her lawyer is calling on the governor to change the wording of the licenses. The governor says he doesn't have that authority and will not intervene in what he calls, quote, a matter between her and the courts. Now, again, her lawyer, Staber, says that licenses issued by Ms. Davis' office without her approval are void. Well, that could be yet another legal fight. Rowan County Attorney and State Attorney General say those licenses are, in fact, valid. Well, that, that sounds like two against one to me, but, you know, let, let them fight it out. Let her continue to do this. But for a woman that found religion and had to seek forgiveness for, among other things, being married four different times, twice to the same man, uh, and who inadvertently issued a license to a same-sex couple back in February. She didn't know they were same-sex couples. I think it was a trans transgender person. But for her to uh, stand as some shining example of religious freedom, and she's not the only one. She is not the only one. There are others who talk about, you know, their religious beliefs are being abrogated somehow by marrying gay couples. It is unbelievable. Unbelievable. But it's going to keep going. And see, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that a lot of the people that support Kim Davis in Kentucky, and by the way, the town she's from is population 4,200. Not exactly a booming metropolis, uh, gracing Kentucky, but an opponent of same-sex marriage from a place called Olive Hill, Kentucky, says, quote, we're happy for God to raise an army for what the majority of people want. The majority of what? 4,200? The majority of people in the state of Kentucky, the majority of what? And how do you know what the majority of people want? That, to me, is 
one of the more interesting elements and aspects, not just of this case, but of a number of different situations that we see cropping up around the country. The idea that people who would act in a homophobic manner feel they're in a majority, that the rest of the country agrees with them. Now, you know, I'm I'm not one to quote polls, but the bottom line is that polling on same-sex marriage has changed drastically in the past decade alone. They might have been right 10, 15 years ago, but they're not right now. Americans have woken up and smartened up. And maybe Kim Davis's God, who I shudder to think might be the same God I worship, might get to her and say, you know, Kim, this ain't cool. You need to rethink this. You need to understand that God, in my judgment, is a God of inclusion, not of exclusion. But, hey, enough of that. She's not the only one, and I said this earlier. There's a judge in Oregon, a guy by the name of Vance Day. He's a county judge, Marion County, Oregon. He's refused to issue same-sex marriages as well. He's being investigated, however, by the Commission on Judicial Fitness and Disability. Now, the judge has come under fire for his refusal. And he stopped performing the weddings because same-sex unions violate his religious beliefs. He also posted a picture of Hitler in his office and said that it was a reminder that democracy defeated fascism in World War II. Well, why don't you put up a picture of some American soldiers from World War II. You know, the uh, planting of the flag on Edward Jima, something that would honor American veterans. And apparently he's allegedly treated veterans in a less than forthright and courteous manner when they came before his court. But he's another one, another one, who says, well, my religious beliefs, will not permit me to sanction same-sex marriages. I, I, I am absolutely baffled by this. And may, maybe somebody in the audience can help me, <laughs> you know, can explain this to me. Our number is 877-874-4888. 877-874-4888. You know, uh, I wasn't going to go into this. But I will, given this kind of intransigence on the part of some people in the United States, people in the United States, by the way, who were elected to public office, swore to uphold the law of the land. But last Saturday, I went to uh, a party, a reunion party for a place called the Paradise Garage, which closed 28 years ago. And my friend Joey Llanos and David DePino, both both close friends of mine through the years, give reunion parties every year. And well over a thousand people from the last count on Saturday, 1,800 people showed up to dance the night away and to commune with each other. The people that came were gay. They were straight. They were black. They were white. They were Letitian, uh, Letitian, 
They were Latino. They were Asian. They were all manner of people. And what they had in common was love and inclusion, not exclusion. And from about 9 o'clock Saturday night until 6 o'clock, well past 6 o'clock, actually, Sunday morning, they expressed the unity of inclusion. They danced with each other by themselves. They screamed to the same songs. And they talked about, among themselves, because this wasn't a public thing. I did speak a few words at this gathering. But they spoke about, among themselves, a unity, which has spanned now 28 years since the place closed. It opened in 1977. So you can see that particular type of unity, which ranges a wide spectrum of gender identification, race, color, creed, nationality, whatever. It stood the test of time. And for the life of me, for the life of me, I don't know how many of the people there considered themselves Christians. Doesn't on some level really matter. Although I must say that there were people that used to go to the garage back in the day and they'd stay until 8.30, nine o'clock, and then they go straight to church. And the garage kind of was a, a, a glue, a binder that brought all these people together to say, hey, you know what? You may be gay or whatever, but you're all right. You're cool. Don't believe what other people say. Don't Cop to the labels that other people put on you. And this to me, and it's just to me, this is the epitome of Christianity. It is what Christianity is supposed to stand for. Not for some guy, Vance Day, who says that marrying gays violate his religious beliefs. Not Kim Davis, who will sit there and defy the Supreme Court of the United States and say, no, I I don't care what they say. I'm not issuing licenses. It's so hypocritical, so nonsensical. And hopefully, for very long, you know, when our kids get a little older and we approach our dotage collectively, we can look back and say, you know what? The seeds of inclusion and progress were planted on our watch. I mean, that's really all I can expect. To say, you know what, those gut instincts I had as a young person, that everybody ought to be judged based on who they are, not their orientation or color or creed or nationality. And one of these days, I'm going to have a discussion about nationality, because nationality kind of sort of bugs me. And we'll, we'll touch on that when we talk about the migrant story over in Europe, which we will get to, trust me. But before we do, this is one of these be careful what you wish for stories. I saw this in the New York Times. I don't know the players involved, but I've seen the scenario played out before. As New Mexico, as New Mexico scandals grow, Democrats hope to tarnish Governor. Now, 
the governor of New Mexico is a Republican Latina. And I believe she's the first in the country. She's very apparently very popular, but she's had some very serious problems with scandal in her administration. Specifically, the Secretary of State, whose name is Diana Duran. Now, the governor is Susana Martinez. Diana Duran is facing 64 misdemeanor and felony charges accused of misusing campaign money to cover gambling and other personal expenses, one of several scandals that have rocked New Mexico politics this this summer. Gee, sound familiar in New York? (laughs) Some of you all may be aware of this. Uh, And the reason why I bring this up, even though I don't live in New Mexico, is that in politics, you always seemingly try to make hay out of the misfortunes of the opposition party. In this case, the Republican. Now, New Mexico has been a Democratic stronghold for a while. But of late, they've turned Republican. I really think that the Democrats might be making a mistake here. Not because this woman did or didn't do what she's accused of doing. 64 misdemeanor and felony counts are a lot of charges. That, to me, is not really the issue. The issue is whether or not you've got something to stand on as opposed to attempting to gain from the misfortunes of scandals in the opposition. Because to me, if that's all you're running on for political office, you got a problem on your hands. I'm not at all sure that scandal sticks. Certainly doesn't stick in New York. You know, when someone is charged with scandal, or even when someone is convicted in a political scandal, the person that ends up taking their place is almost always of the same party as the person charged or convicted in a scandal. Now, that holds true whether it's Democrats or Republicans. And on a national level, there are literally, literally dozens of instances where Democrats accuse Republicans of being corrupt. You know, they look at David Vitter, or they look at this one, or they look at that one, and vice versa. Republicans accuse Democrats of being corrupt. Corruption is a serious problem. I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of corruption and scandal in politics. It ought not to happen, except that politicians, because their primary focus is on maintaining power, they can be susceptible to corruption. Even those with the best of intentions sometimes can get caught up in crap, can get caught up in nonsense. I've seen it happen. But all I'm saying in the case of this New Mexico situation, because it reminded me of some of the stuff that is going on in New York, don't Democrats hang your hat on trying to win elected office based on scandal in the current administration. Don't do it. Stand on your own. Stand up and say what you're about. You know that whole dirty glass, clean glass thing? You have you don't have to down these people. I mean, you can make note of the fact that they've been 
charged with corruption, but don't try to mount a political campaign based on the corruption of your opposition. I just don't think it's smart politics. I could be wrong, but, you know, I've been around, around the bus a couple times, and it doesn't always work. Sometimes it does. Maybe it will in this case, but it doesn't always work. And, and my sense is it doesn't work more often than it works. Shifting our focus here to New York City, Bill de Blasio, our mayor, is having some difficulty with regard to the issue of homelessness. We may have touched on this last week, as a matter of fact. He is being hammered by at least one tabloid, sometimes both, and even the broadsheet, about his approach to homelessness. And in many cases, the issue is one of perception. The issue is one of optics. How many homeless people do people see on the street? And if they go through certain areas, if they go past Penn Station, or if they go past certain parts of our city, you will find large numbers of homeless people. Now, in fact, the homeless population has declined from 60,000, just over 60,000 in December, to about 56,000 last month. Where those 4,000 people went? No. Nobody knows, least of all the mayor. Okay, but he has now sought to defend his administration by saying, well, you know, homeless didn't just happen on my watch. Homeless is a decade-old problem. Decades-old problem. Let me pluralize that. Well, duh. That's absolutely true. But the fact of the matter is you've put a plan together, and maybe that's the issue. Maybe he just needs to make sure more people know about his plan. He's talking about putting up a whole bunch of money to try and deal with the homeless problem. What was it, a billion dollars over four years? Something like that. But, you know, when you start, when you lead with the idea, oh, homelessness is a decade-old problem. Yeah, absolutely. But to me, that's not the smartest way to approach this. I think anyone who's lived in New York for a while knows good and well that homelessness is a decades-old problem. You know, I mean, if you go back over the history of this city, you can look back during the Depression when people, I don't know whether they they were considered homeless at the time, but literally hundreds if not thousands of people encamped in Central Park because they had no place else to go. They built what would ordinarily be called shanty towns to live. Fast forward till the late 20th, early 21st century, you see shanty towns, but in different locations and under different situations. Nobody, no large number of homeless people in camps in Central Park. The other thing that people ought to be aware of is that we're in the summer. Homelessness is much more visible during the summer fact of the matter is, it doesn't go away when the weather gets cold. It morphs into something different. People may not be as prominent. However, and and I mentioned this when I was on New York One this past Friday, when you walk through Penn Station early in the morning, as I used to do on a daily basis, you see 
an encampment of homeless people because it's warm, relatively warm in Penn Station. So the vestibule that empties out onto, I believe that's 31st Street, and other parts of Penn Station where they're not being rousted by the police are homeless encampments. Part of the reason for this is, one, fear of the shelter system. There are homeless people that want nothing to do with city shelters. So part, I think, the mayor's challenge here is to make the shelter system more welcoming and more habitable so that people aren't afraid of it. The other issue, and again, I mentioned this on New York One, is the fact that many homeless people, not all, I don't even know if it's a majority, but many homeless people have mental illness issues that compound their homelessness and makes the ability to find them housing all that more difficult. Because, see, it it does no one any good to put a a mentally ill homeless person in an apartment and then have them lose the apartment in six months or a couple of months because they just don't have the capacity to deal with living in an apartment. And I'm going to tell you something else. And I've seen this, you know, one of the things I didn't say on New York One is that I've walked through Penn Station and seen homeless people I knew from 20, 25, 30 years ago who were perfectly normal people then. But now their lives are broken. Now they have nothing to look forward to. They have absolutely no hope whatsoever. And sometimes it's a matter of losing a job and then losing an apartment and then losing your family and then having your mind slowly slip away from you. You know, people don't always just like combust into mental illness. I believe in many cases, and I'm no professional, but I believe in many cases mental illness is a function of life experience where a blow is delivered on an open wound in a person's life. And little by little, bit by bit, those blows cause you to cease to function normally. And I know, you know, they, they give people meds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes I wonder whether meds are the best solution. I, I, again, I'm not a medical professional, so maybe they are. But sometimes I wonder if the meds ought to be combined with some type of therapy. Long term, may not be cheap, but therapy that tries to bring people back to mental health. Sometimes I think we write the mentally ill off as being hopeless. I'm talking about their condition now, not how they see themselves. They may see themselves as hopeless too. But I think all too often we have a tendency to write people off. And I hate to say this, but a lot of New Yorkers see the homeless as a nuisance, where they're asking for money on the street, and not all of them do. 
or whether they're carting their belongings in a shopping bag or a shopping cart or whatever. They're just a nuisance. They smell bad. You don't want to be around them. Well, they deserve better. They really do. They're people, ladies and gentlemen. Actual human beings. And they deserve our collective best effort as civilized people to try and bring them to some form of normalcy. For those that can, put them in housing. Help them get jobs. Give them a life plan or assist them in developing their own life plan whereby they can eventually not just move into an apartment, a subsidized apartment, but eventually move up the ladder of economic success in our city. You think it's impossible? It's not impossible. It is not impossible. I've told this story. I don't know if I ever told this on the air. But when I was working at a certain radio station back in the day, there was uh, a doctor, Dr. Gerald Dees, who used to do a segment on the, on the station. And he took an interest with a guy, interest uh, uh, on a guy, who used to sit in front of the radio station every day. He, had, he actually, I think, had a radio and would listen. And he engaged this guy. And in engaging him, he found out that he was a veteran. He was a homeless veteran. So Dr. Dees did some homework, did some investigating, and found out that this guy had an account with like $60,000 in it. That's right, sixty grand. He had never accessed it. He professed not to even know it existed. And through Dr. Dees' efforts, this guy eventually found an apartment. I don't know if he managed to get help for whatever mental problem he may have had, but I know Dr. Dees got into the VA. Now, the VA may not be Nirvana, but at least he started the ball rolling, and I have always admired Dr. Gerald Dees for the effort he put in to help one individual. One. Sometimes that's all it takes. It's 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Our number is 877-874-4888. City of Baltimore has settled with the family of Freddie Gray, young man that was killed and sparked disturbances in that city. A bunch of other stories to talk about, including the migrant problem that Europe is facing and one person's solution to it. This is the Mark Riley Show. We shall be back very, very shortly.
Prince of Plum Blossom. One of my favorite pieces of music. It's 28 minutes before the hour, 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I'm glad you are here with us this evening as the sun gets ready to go down and hopefully we get a respite from the warm temperatures. Right now, my good friend Michael S.W. from the Bronx is on the line. Michael, how you doing, my friend? What's up, good buddy? Always a pleasure talking to you. How you been? I've been doing good. I've been doing all right. And a little bit of a, um, a shock, if you want to call it that, and that is in regards to Kim Davis. I shouldn't say shock, maybe more frustration, because the thing is that I'm sick and tired. I heard she's a Democrat, but it doesn't make a difference at this point. But I'm sick and tired of the right-wingers hijacking my religion as well as hijacking the um, Constitution and want to cherry-pick as to what a, it should be a quick ball and what should not. They only want stuff working for themselves. You, you know what I mean? First off, if somebody's going to call themselves Christian, that means you are a follower of Christ, and you will follow his teachings, his commandments, his examples, as told in the Gospels. Now, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus doesn't say anything about abortion, contraception, homosexuality. He doesn't say anything of that sort. The only thing he says is, love one another. And that Michael, means it, loving it, it, everybody. The, the, uh, the pastors in some of these churches are the ones that interpret God's word to mean exclude gay people. They're the ones that pull this off. You're right. Jesus didn't talk about this. This is something that pastors have decided to interpret. Now, there's enough yeah. stuff if you want to interpret in the Bible, there'd be people committing suicide and murder left and right for violating certain tenets of the Bible. True. You know, uh, eating, eating shrimp. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of stuff. There's but a lot of the stuff. The line is, uh, and somebody, somebody posted this on Facebook earlier today, uh, does somebody who doesn't believe in UFOs, are they incapable of working for a space agency, for example? Uh, you well, know, I, I mean, it, there's a lot of stuff that, that really problem. follows this hypocrisy. Yeah, that, there is the hypocrisy right there. But my problem is also is that these are the same right-wingers that want to claim about First Amendment and separation of church and state. Do you recall, Mark? that there was a big argument amongst workers like of those of Walmart and all these other big corporations that want to open on Thanksgiving or even open on Christmas, and people want to have us saying that, you know, it's my religious observance, and then those big right-wing corporations said, no, you don't have to day off. We're open for business. Get to work, you're fired. So whatever happened to the First Amendment right there, you see the double standard along that, and as far as Kim Davis is concerned, you know, the thing is that if she had a problem with, um, with granting um, marriage licenses to same-sex couples, she should have thought of that before she decided to run for county clerk and before she took an oath to serve everybody. Because, you know, you probably would apply for that particular position with the laws as you know it, but you never know if laws would change for the better or even for the worse. That's why I never joined the military or became a police officer, only because I knew that somewhere down the line, I might be put in a situation where I might have to kill somebody. And I'm totally against that, as much as I'm against the death penalty. 
but Absolutely, people really but you didn't to... take the gig. She did take I'm the sorry? gig. I'm sorry, say that again? She took the gig, Michael. I mean, she got elected, yeah. but she took the gig. And for she her now to say that there's no such thing as separation of church and state, which is what this really is about at its core, is absurd. It is yeah, absolutely absurd. But you see, Michael, this is this is something a little bit larger than that. This mm-hmm. is social conservatives latching on to an issue and pushing back on it as hard as they possibly can. The, the, the people who run this religious conservative, they're not completely stupid. What they do is take Kim Davis and, you know, plaster her all over a fundraising appeal. And next thing you know, she's making their money. Yep, absolutely. She's being used and she don't even know it. And what's so funny also, Mark, is that they don't want a separation of church and state in this aspect, but they sure as heck wanted a separation of church and state when it came to fighting Obamacare and trying to avoid uh, providing contraception. You know, it's like it's back and forth with these guys. I mean, they gave the new meaning to the beach footwear flip-flops. <laughs> Michael, got to run, My man, but gosh. thanks a lot. My pleasure. Always a pleasure. All right, you take care. My friend Michael S.W. from the Bronx. We're going to move on to another story, and this is the story of the aftermath of Freddie Gray. Baltimore approved a $6.4 million settlement with Freddie Gray's family. And there are a lot of people who are up in arms about this because they say that by uh, getting to the settlement, even before the family filed suit and before the trial of the six police officers charged in his death, that they will make it impossible for those cops to get a fair trial in Baltimore. They've been seeking a change of venue, and some legal experts, people who claim to be legal experts, I'm not one of them, but they say that this may bolster the case for a change of venue. Now, in July, New York City settled for $5.9 million with the family of Eric Garner. But, you know, all of these settlements, I don't care whether it's, you know, 450000 or 5000 or $6.4 million, whatever it is. It brings, a very, to me, a very important question to the fore. What is a human life actually worth? You know, Freddie Gray didn't have any choice about whether his family would get $6.4 million and he would die in the process. I'm sure he'd rather have lived, you know, same with Eric Garner. The idea that cities can sort of buy off these families really impedes the reforms. I won't even say reform. Reforms is too light a word. The change necessary to make police departments act in a more humane And in some cases, a more rational fashion. There are some cops, and it's not all. It's not even a majority. But there are some cops who act in an out-of-control fashion. They overestimate the extent to which they are empowered to use lethal force. Whether it's Daniel Pantaleo in uh, Staten Island in Eric Garner's case, or these six cops in Baltimore. 
And what you have found, and I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again at the risk of being repetitive, but what ends up happening is that that money that's paid out, and some people thump their chest, well, it's taxpayers' money. Yeah, well, it is taxpayers' money because it is taxpayers that empower police departments, whether we want to admit it or like it or not. But that money sort of says to law enforcement, well, okay, uh, you can pay that money, but the way we police doesn't necessarily have to change. And again, I've said before, some of these incidents, selling loose cigarettes, a domestic dispute in, che- in Texas where a guy gets shot with his hands up, you know, uh, uh, Sandra Bland, all of these different stories where people were stopped for nonsense, absolute and utter nonsense. And next thing you know, they end up dead. And they didn't have, most of them did not have firearms. As a matter of fact, the overwhelming majority of people who have been killed in the last year or so were not killed. Communities don't react the same way if they read a story that says somebody had a gun and pulled it on the cops and the cops shot him. People, generally speaking, rational people, say, well, hey, that's righteous. The guy, you know, the cop was in mortal danger. They don't get upset over that. But in too many instances, unarmed people, somebody with their hands up, a 12-year-old, Tamir Rice, in Cleveland, Eric Garner in New York, all over the country. People have encounters with the police. And what it has had the effect of doing, and see, this is where it gets dicey, right? The police say that all this focus on police brutality, alleged or whatever, keeps the police from doing their jobs properly. We can enforce the law with all these people against us. And the flip side of the coin is, and and I have heard this from many, many people who I was startled to hear it from. Startled. Because they're not people who would ordinarily articulate a fear of police. But there are people I know who say, hey, man, you know, I'm going down the street and I see a cop. I'm not sure how to act anymore. I don't know what to do anymore. I don't know if I, you know, question a police officer about why I'm being stopped, whether or not I'm going to end up dead. And that, you see, is the crux of the problem. Now, I tend not to believe that police officers are somehow scared to do their jobs because of the Black Lives Matter movement, which, by the way, some people have alleged. I'm not making this up. I don't believe that for a nanosecond. Cops are going to be cops. That's their job. But the way they do their job and how they interact with citizens, in particular black citizens, but not just black citizens, should be subject to scrutiny given the number of unarmed black citizens who have been killed by police under, at best, I repeat, at best, questionable circumstances. 
So $6.4 million will go some way toward assuaging the hurt that Freddie Gray's family feels. I'm sure they'd rather have, I, I hope, they'd rather have Freddie Gray than 6.4. But I think at the end of the day, what they actually want is justice. They want the cops involved in this situation to face justice. Is that too much to ask? I don't think it's too much to ask. But, you know, sometimes people act in ways that are, you know, baffling to me, despite my long years on this planet. Hillary Clinton <coughs> talking about emails. You know, I, 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 I have heard this story over and over and over again. I have heard responses from her to this story over and over and over again. And every time I hear something, I think of Alan Iverson, which, by the way, he, he, he got a lot of flack for this. But he said, you know, we're talking about practice. <laughs> you know, what's the matter? We're talking about practice. And I just get the sense that this whole email thing is a bludgeon that really has no substance to it. Now, she's gone as far as apologizing. If I were in her inner circle, I'd say, don't apologize. What are you apologizing for? Because essentially what she did was commingle State Department and personal emails. She has said, and there's been no proof to call her a liar, that she never commingled classified documents or classified information or passed it on her personal email. But like, the controversy that has rocked her campaign? Really? Emails? I mean, look, I know that, that some businesses have firewalls where, you know, you don't put anything personal on a company email. And you don't put any company stuff on a personal email. And I understand why those companies have those kinds of regulations. I must tell you that under certain circumstances, it's difficult to do properly. You know, when I used to do a morning show, I would, you know, assemble some of my research at home before I went into the office. I would email it to myself. I'd, I'd bring it up on the company computer and finish my work on the company computer and finish looking at stories on the company computer. I mean, Maybe Hillary's situation is more complicated than that. She said on ABC World News tonight, I take responsibility and I'm trying to be as transparent as I possibly can. And, and to be honest with you, I believe her. And, I, you know, I don't say this as I'm not a Hillary supporter necessarily. It's too early for me. I find some interesting people running and some interesting people thinking about running. Uh, she says she's sorry that it's raised all these questions. Well, the questions, ladies and gentlemen, are political questions, as far as I'm concerned. There, you know, there are people that think that Hillary Clinton has some smoking gun with regard to Benghazi in these emails. Now, how many has she shared? I think it's like 56,000 emails, something like that. 
So a lot of emails she, she's given people already. So, you know, uh, and it was a private email server that she used while she was Secretary of State. She's turned over, I, I think it's something like 56,000 emails. What have they found in the emails? You know, and, and by the way, they've gone as far as, yeah, 55,000 pages of email. Pages, not emails alone, 55,000 pages of emails. Apparently, somebody in the Senate, one of the Senate committees, is trying to offer immunity to her IT guy to come before the Senate committee. They're fishing. They are fishing. And like Alan Iverson said, yo, man, this is practice, <laughs> okay? How about we, you know, get on to some more serious issues? I hope we got more serious issues to look at. The president of the European Union's executive arm has called on the EU to accept 160,000 migrants, imploring leaders not to remain indifferent in the face of one of Europe's toughest humanitarian challenges in decades. This came from Jean-Claude Juncker, who's the president of the EU's executive. Quote, turning a blind eye to poor and helpless people, that is not Europe, at least not modern Europe. He's, by the way, a former prime minister of Luxembourg, is Mr. Juncker. Uh, there are countries in Europe that want nothing to do with migrants. There are politicians in Europe who curry favor by appealing to a sense of nationalism that says we're going to lose whatever nationality, national identity we may have if we let, quote, those people into the country, whether it's from Syria or Iraq or wherever. I said to my wife the other night, I'm not sure she understood what I, she gave me a very quizzical look. She said, oh, that's an interesting way of looking at it. To me, this is at least partially karmic. There's a karma and a symmetry in all this. You know, uh, Europe played out its World War II battles in many places outside of Europe, including the Middle East, and used Middle East countries, Middle East leaders as pawns. You know, Rommel, the desert fox, he wasn't fighting in Germany, he was fighting in North Africa. And I'm not going to say that all these migrants are chickens coming home to roost or anything, but there's a symmetry to this if you know history that might make me kind of question, might give me just a touch of pause about why this is happening. Now, you know, it's happening because, as Mr. Junker said, these are poor people. Uh, You know, as long as there is war in Syria and terror in Libya, the refugee crisis will not simply go away. So... What they're asking for is all of the European countries to share equally or more or less equally in the burden of absorbing these migrants. You know, the Hungarians built a 110-mile fence on its border with Syria to try and keep migrants out. You've heard about the stories of people being railroaded into railroad stations and being kept there by physical force. Because they don't, but A, they don't know what else to do with them, but B, they don't want them in their country. 
Now, that gets into the whole question of nationalism, which I'm not going to dwell on here. But the fact of the matter is, you know, Europe has had its few problems over the last decade or so, one of which is the fact that the population of many European countries isn't really growing all that much. And the fact of the matter is that the birth rates are declining. I saw a story about this one time. I was stunned. So, you know, and they were speaking specifically of Western Europe. You know, the birth rates are declining, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But as long as workers in Hungary or workers in Serbia or workers in other places think that they're going to have to compete with these people for jobs, that's where this rub is. Now, the emergency plan faced opposition essentially as soon as Juncker got the words out of his mouth. The leader of the British Conservative Party says, let's work out what each country can do to help those fleeing for their lives. Now, that's not that innocuous. But let's be clear. Telling countries what to do, forcing a plan on them, only risks more finger-pointing. It might make some of you feel better, but I fear it could actually make the crisis worse. In other words, we're not sure we want these people. Not 160,000, not 160. We don't know if we want them. Now, when it comes to England, and I, I found this out some years ago, you know, I went, I'm staying in a hotel and went downstairs to have the buffet breakfast. Lovely buffet breakfast, by the way. But all the wait staff were from other places in Europe. Hungary, Bulgaria, all these different places. And I know because, you know, I actually talk to people. And you find out that, you know, even, you know, the wait staff in a halfway decent hotel are from someplace else. And, and by the way, that's true here, too. <laughs> you know, look at who's working cleaning up your room, changing your sheets, making sure you got toilet paper and tissues and stuff. By and large, they ain't Americans. You get up the food chain, the assistant managers are the Americans, okay? They're local people. But the fact of the matter is uh, they better find a humane way, humane way to deal with this. Czech Republic and Hungary according to this article in the New York Times, says they're likely to continue resisting any binding or permanent quotas. Now, you know, I understand. I understand. I don't necessarily agree with, but I do understand why uh, countries want to keep their borders secure and don't want to, you know, have a huge influx of foreigners running in. But the other side of the equation is, what do you do? Do you let, just let these people fend for themselves? Do you want to let these people die at the hands of your indifference? Well, we got a couple of minutes left, and uh, I did want to mention that Governor Cuomo went down to Puerto Rico, and uh, he wants to offer advice, technical assistance, and symmetry, <laughs> whatever that is. Puerto Rico, by the way, uh, is facing a $72 billion shortfall. And there, there are questions about exactly how they're going to deal with it. Governor Cuomo 
got some flack, and I mentioned this on New York One as well, because from some Puerto Rican advocacy groups, because he's got donors who hold some of the debt, some of that $72 billion that Puerto Rico owes. Uh, I, I'm not advocating this, but I thought about it for a minute. Uh, remember what Argentina did? <laughs> Essentially, Argentina gave its creditors the finger. You know which finger I'm talking about. And, you know, everybody predicted doom and gloom for Argentina. Argentina's doing fine, thank you. They're doing okay. They didn't go under. There weren't riots in the streets. And they didn't have to resort to the type of austerity that is being foisted on the Greeks and will soon be foisted on the Puerto Ricans. Make no mistake about that. The bankers want their dough. And one way they think they're going to try and get it is by saying to Puerto Rico, yo, this is what you're going to do. And for me, that's one of the strongest arguments for independence I've ever heard. Now, earlier today, I get I assume it's it's not over, although it might be. Uh, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Sarah Palin, Duck Dynasty star Phil Robertson. A reality, reality TV star should be banished from the American lexicon. Anyway, they were on hand for a pro-war anti-Iran deal rally. It was held at the Capitol. Uh, Democrats not only have the votes to uphold the veto, uh, but they have the votes to block it to begin with. And the Duck Dynasty stars and the political hacks of the world ain't happy. Uh, I saw Trump running his mouth at this rally. I saw Ted Cruz. And who, what are you going to do about the tyranny of Iran? How are you going to say to the people's kids that they died trying to fight? The Get out of here. Get out of here with that nonsense. And uh, nonsense it is. That's, that's pretty much all I can say about it. I, I mean, I, I, I don't like to speak ill of people, <laughs> okay? But, hey... You know what? Later form, if they can't take a joke. We're out of here. It's coming up on 7 o'clock. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld, all the good people that uh, run the PRN ship. Keep listening for all the great programming here on the Progressive Radio Network. For the Mark Riley Show, my name is Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening, and Lord have mercy, a better and cooler week ahead. <laughs> 